1: That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This episode of Speaking of Bitcoin on the Coindesk Podcast Network is brought to you by Nexo.io and Rejects Galactic Wrestling.
0: Hello there. I'm George Frankly, and I'm going to take a look at how even the best and brightest people can make truly stupid decisions and terrible predictions, and what we can learn from them. This is Dare to be Stupid. What do a gun that's too accurate, a burger that's too affordable, and a crypto coin that's too energy efficient have in common? This time on Dare to be Stupid, more is less, better is worse, and other right answers to wrong questions. I've been stuck in the armchair stats nerd trap of using baseball as a metaphor for everything, for quite a while. I just have to accept that it's not the ideal universal language of economic behavior that I want it to be. Instead, I've come to realize that the one true perfect allegorical medium for behavioral economics was with us all along, a postmodernist art form known in Saudi Arabia as Al Shamshun, or as it's been known in the United States for 35 years, The Simpsons. While scientists drill out Arctic ice cores to chronicle the granular passage of time and the lead content of our atmosphere, The rest of us can just use 33-plus seasons of The Simpsons. You can watch entire culture shifts, the tilt and tumble of the political climate, and even the nuts and bolts of commercial animation go through growing pains and new paradigms, and it's that last one that I'm hung up on. If for some godforsaken reason you chose to watch the entire groundbreaking American primetime animated comedy series The Simpsons in a single, uninterrupted 12-day marathon, you might not be too shaken by the growth and refinement of the art and the movement. But if you skip around a bit a simple jump between the early 90s and the late 2000s is absolutely jarring. It isn't just the crisp widescreen HD presentation. Every single line, detail, character, and background of modern Simpsons is absolutely flawless, perfectly measured, proportioned, scaled, and on model in every frame. Years of developments in digital animation have turned the show into a streamlined machine that generates a very visually consistent product. My point is... Modern Simpsons is mechanically superior to its past counterparts in numerous ways. It is, by some objective metrics, a better gestalt product. There's never an accidental miscolor or a bad frame. None of the weird jerky facial expressions or chicken-scratch backgrounds of the early seasons will ever happen again. But you know where I'm going with this. Nobody on, above, or living in the subterranean kingdoms of this Earth believes that we are presently in the golden age of peak Simpsons. Beyond the simple fact that it was funnier and more relevant in 1994 than it ever will be again, the wacky, rubber-limbed, imperfect animation of that first decade was more entertaining, more alive, and simply more memorable than the sterile product that came after. Mechanically superior doesn't mean anything if that mechanism isn't doing what consumers actually wanted. And that's the mind-numbingly simple lesson that will cost supposedly brilliant people millions of dollars every day. Quantitatively better isn't better. History has shown us over and over that sometimes more is less, and sometimes better is worse. As the child of a caffeine-less Mormon household where root beer was the apex delicacy, the legendary story of A&W's failure to compete in the fast food burger space is near and dear to my heart. In the 1980s, A&W Root Beer's chain of affiliated restaurants ran headfirst into the more-is-less dilemma in a way I admit they could never have seen coming. Their plan was simple, and their marketing was catchy usurp McDonald's famous quarter-pound burger by selling a one-third pound burger for the same price. The slogan? The third is the word. Oh, that is good, actually. It performed shockingly poorly, so much so that corporate did additional focus testing just to understand the customer's perspective. That perspective? That the ads made no sense to them, because why would you buy a ws smaller burger for the same price as McDonald's larger quarter-pounder? It's something that reeks of urban legend, yet the story is supported by the company owner Alfred Taubman himself. An unpleasantly large number of people surveyed thought that one-third was smaller than one-fourth or one-quarter. And that misunderstanding was not a battle worth fighting. As Taubman himself said, the customer, regardless of his or her proficiency with fractions, is always right. The market, the real boots-on-the-ground consumer market, didn't share corporate's preoccupation with those size labels. Another different campaign and branding might've moved those volumetrically superior burgers in greater units, but they tried to appeal to a famously math illiterate nation with a numbers pitch.
1: Reject's Galactic Wrestling League is a play-to-earn, turn-based fighting game boasting a unique collection of fighters, all with their own special moves, strengths, weaknesses, and artwork. With an inaugural drop on March 31st, there's still time to get in early. Find out more at Regex.com. That's rejects, starting with a W, like wrestling.com Nexo is the go-to platform for all things crypto. Invest in the hottest coins out there and start earning risk-free interest of up to 20% APR, paid out daily. Need cash ASAP but don't want to sell? Use your crypto as collateral and receive a credit line at premium rates. Open your Nexo account by March 31st and receive up to a $100 welcome bonus. Get started today at Nexo.io. That's N-E-X-O dot
0: Like a marathon of Ninja Warrior reruns, the decay of The Simpsons and the struggle of the third pounder are fun examples that let you laugh at others' failures from a place of relative comfort. But these principles can carry over to some very real, very consequential, and very dangerous decisions, like being on Ninja Warrior. A costly example of this more-is-less dilemma came during the Cold War in that weird lapse between the famous World War II M1 rifle and the modern M16 rifle. If you ever wondered where the other 15 rifles in between went, I have news for you. Count that again, the number is 14, because you didn't count the one. M1, than 16. Also, there was a model in between that was designed, tested, produced, and fielded, but quickly replaced and largely forgotten. What happened to the Army's M14? The M14 was exactly what you would expect, a modern update to the standard infantry rifle using the lessons learned in World War II. Harder hitting and more accurate than the aging M1 rifle, the M14 was deployed in 1959. And yet, the M16 was deployed to replace it in 1964. Why the bums rush to get the M14 off the field in just five years? Unfortunately, those improvements over the M1 were not improvements. And the improvements it actually needed, well, give that a moment. That powerful long-range M14 fired large caliber rounds and was accurate to a range of over 800 meters. The more successful M16 fired small rounds and was designed for a range of 400 meters. Why was less actually more? That 400 meters was a magic number in the M16's design. Statistics from World War II and Korea found that 400 meters was the upper limit for most small arms combat. Combat at half a kilometer or more was incredibly uncommon and ineffective for standard infantry. That long-range M14 was not only double what 99% of soldiers would ever need, but its finicky barrel required careful maintenance and delicate care to keep that accuracy. Moreover, that high-caliber ammunition came with a very obvious fault and a very subtle one. The larger, more powerful rounds brought larger and more powerful recoil. For skilled marksmen to keep on target, they had to fire it slowly and methodically. The lighter recoil of the M16's smaller rounds allowed soldiers to keep shots moving downfield at a much quicker pace without their muzzle climbing off target. That subtle flaw came into logistics. The larger ammo took up that much more space for only marginally higher stopping power. An infantryman could carry nearly twice as many rounds for the M16 as they could for the M14 in the same space. Our lizard brains gravitate towards critical metrics like size, power, and precision. But those are qualities that the market, rather, the battlefield, wasn't actually demanding. The M14 was more accurate and more powerful than anybody asked it to be, and those seemingly critical improvements had devastating costs. The M14 was much heavier than both its predecessor and its successor, and more expensive to boot. Even worse, its wooden stock and fixed barrel were totally unfit for the humid jungles of Vietnam, its first and only main deployment. The M16 stumbled and required years of improvements, but the M14 was dead out the door. There could be a time and place and scenario where the M14 could be exactly what someone needed. That is to say, a specific market where its particular cost benefit ratio was precisely in demand. But that wasn't the average soldier on the average battlefield. And that was the market it was supposed to meet. The pattern should be pretty clear at this point. Better means nothing in a vacuum, the same way that a number is only a statistic when it has context. More can only be better when it's tethered to its market. Building a bigger and stronger product is pretty stupid if the climate demands a smaller and faster product. But there's a reason it's called dare to be stupid and not don't be stupid. Bad decisions aren't inherently stupid ones. Sometimes a product design can be objectively good in many ways, but it's just a few too many steps past what the market is ready for. A product ahead of its time may be just that jumping the line and answering a question that consumers haven't asked yet. It's a hard phenomenon to describe, but I think it's well illustrated by the beleaguered cryptocurrency NXT. NXT, which people frequently pronounce next, but I'm not people, is not a top 10 crypto coin. It's not a top 100 crypto by most counts. In fact, I don't have the energy to keep scrolling right now, but 200 is not looking great either. But there's nothing really wrong with NXT, and there's a lot right with it. It's massively customizable, able to be used as a framework for bespoke currency variants, non-currency tokens, contract and authentication functions, even transfers of arbitrary data and messages. It even forgoes the costly mining process of -of proof-of-work in favor of -of proof-of-stake methods, something that's more and more in the public eye lately as the other top blockchains are scrutinized for their power consumption. You could argue that NXT does it all. But if you've ever heard of NXT, you're already aware of a glaring problem. NXT has been around for almost a decade, and it's never made a particularly big splash. Its strengths are its weaknesses. NXT arrived on the scene in 2013, with most of these functions already built in. It had rudimentary elements of custom tokens and smart contracts two years before Ethereum launched in 2015, and was that much further ahead of Ethereum's upcoming proof-of-stake changeover. NXT launched with a heady list of features that, simply put, people really weren't asking for in 2013. We're talking about a proof-of-stake, practically NFT-ready blockchain that launched when Coinbase was barely a year old and Mt. Gox was, you know, still a thing that existed. Concerns over proof-of-work viability and mining difficulty were still somewhat speculative, and few people, if any, were sounding alarms over scaling energy consumption. NXT hit the scene as just one of numerous altcoin competitors that promised answers to people's concerns, and the problem was, it wasn't answering concerns people actually had at the time. Any currency needs wide enough adoption to drive interest and maintain utility. And without a foothold in the wider market, NXT's advantages are meaningless. NXT showed up too early for breakfast and now younger coins are eating its lunch. Simpler altcoins that established a user base and then rolled with the punches have not only more value, but get more trust and more credit for many of the same functions. NXT tried to sell the right thing at the wrong place and the wrong time. Without a timely and topical incentive, NXT was already going to have a hard time finding groundswell, and its rollout only made things worse. With its anonymous creator pushing for early cash buy-in from interested parties and touting its self-destructive anti-open-source protections, it launched with poor appeal and poor faith. Once its small population of early investors was established, that proof-of-stake distribution inadvertently built a walled garden that would remain unappealing to newcomers. They had put the cheese at the very end of a very frustrating maze, and the mice they wanted to catch didn't even know if they liked cheese. NXT tried to tell people that they needed what it was selling, and they should be grateful for the opportunity. And in the long run, perhaps they could have been right. But you can't sell people answers to questions they didn't ask. Just like A&W can't sell a burger on stats alone, few products can get away with telling people what they want before they want it, or what they need before they demand it. Improvements that nobody will ever need aren't improvements at all, and solutions to problems people aren't concerned about may as well be non-sequiturs. Whether pioneering, innovating, or simply trying to make something like that other thing but better, you need to take a break from coming up with answers and check up on your questions. Don't just ask, who will want what I'm selling? Ask, what do people want? And is what I'm selling that? Thanks for listening. As always, all of my job titles start with the word armchair. If you're an expert and you're hearing me get something wrong, I'd like to hear about it. Thanks very much to George and to you, the listener. If you've got any questions or comments about this segment, send an email to adam at speakingofbitcoin.show. This episode was written, performed, and edited by George Franklin with production assistance from Adam B. Levine. Today's show featured music by Gertie Beats, and the Speaking of Bitcoin theme song is provided by Jared Rubens. We'll be back next week with full episodes, and thanks for listening.